Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark, and joining me today, we have some, some folks from back east, as we'd say out here in the west. And uh, my guests are uh, Krista and Lucy. And uh, Krista D'Amico, I hope I'm saying that correctly, is the Director of Prevention at the Rhode Island Coalition Against Domestic Violence. She was born and raised in Rhode Island, and she's been part of the RICADV team since 2013 when she joined the organization as a communications associate. So in her current role, well, you know what? I'm gonna let her talk about her current role. And uh, you know, the show's not about me yammering away. It's about what the guests have to say. Also joining, uh, joining us is Lucy Rios. And again, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She's the deputy director for the Rhode Island Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And she's been in the movement to end domestic violence for 18 years. So she joined RICADV, Rickative. Out here we call it Wiscative. So I'm assuming, do you ever call it Rickative? Rickative. <laughs> <laughs> she coordinates Rhode Island's primary prevention focused strategies, funded through various iterations of Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Delta programs. So let's start with you, Lucy. Welcome to the show. And thank you for, for joining us and, and talking about your work. Now, I kind of was attracted to information and started looking you up because of the Delta focus. Can you tell me about the Delta focus and how you in Rhode Island got involved with that? Yes. Um, so thank you for having me. Um, and I can tell you that uh, I joined the coalition's team in 2003 to actually coordinate the Delta project. So but prior to that, the coalition did not focus on primary prevention of domestic violence. So this was new to get this funding and support from the Centers of Disease Control to be able to really take a look at what were the strengths in our state? What were the, what were the threats that existed that allowed domestic violence to occur? And what could we put in place to prevent it from happening? continuing to happen. Um, so when I joined the team, um, prevention was new and I, I had the, the pleasure of being able to create new partnerships, build what we call the, the Delta leadership team. And uh, then, which is made up of like stakeholders from the state, from community-based agencies. And we came together and we really took a look at Rhode Island and what was it going to take to prevent domestic violence. And three areas came up after about a three or four year process of, of learning together and, and discovering programs in our state and just doing an assessment of what, what was happening in Rhode Island. Those three areas were engaging men, engaging young people, and then building the state's capacity to really be able to focus on primary prevention of domestic violence. And if I could jump in here, when you say yeah. building capacity, I hear that as a buzzword a lot, but what does it really mean? Yes. Um, so really, it means like the folks that are on the ground, advocates, other violence prevention practitioners, uh, teachers, educators, nurses, really getting folks to understand what their role is in helping um, to prevent domestic violence. Um, and so that really involved like folks understanding and believing, one, that prevention is possible. Uh, that there are things that we can do, that it, domestic violence isn't inevitable, that it doesn't have to exist, that there are ways in which we can protect one another um, and create and change conditions in our communities to stop domestic violence from continuing to occur. Um, and so that when we talk about building prevention capacity, it is a lot of training. It's a lot of education. It's a lot of raising awareness. It's 
um, not just about the issue, but again, about the ways in which we can intervene and, and promote healthy relationships, healthy behaviors, healthy environments where all of us can thrive. Thank so that's what's meant by that, yeah. Okay. So you uh, focused on these three areas, engaging men, engaging young people, building capacity, which sounds to me is just another way of say, a, a more concise way of saying building up your infrastructure and your, your people so that you can do the work that you've identified. Okay, Lucy, maybe you can, um, I'm sorry, Krista, maybe you can jump in here and answer my question because, I, you know, we already said, you know, I'm, I, I'm long in the tooth here and the question that I have is I've seen a lot of history in trying to help domestic violence situations. And I have not seen, I've seen some improvement, but it still happens. We had an incident here in the Seattle area with a prominent sports figure, which seems to happen routinely. And they, whenever they report it, they act like, oh gosh, this is the first time this has ever happened. You know, <laughs> and I want to, I just want to tear my hair out going, this is happening every day, people. You just don't know the names involved. 30, 40 years ago, when the domestic violence movement first became uh, a movement. Police were called, they took the guy for a walk, they blamed alcohol, they sent him back home. And that was that. Then as research started coming in, uh, we started honing uh, how we viewed domestic violence. Can you, uh, Krista, maybe speak to how are we communicating about domestic violence? Because a lot of people don't think it even exists unless it happens to someone they know and then they end up blaming the victim. So where are we in this communication journey that brought us up to the Delta Project? Uh, that's a, a great question, a big question. Thanks, Heather, and thank you again for having us um, on today to share about our work. I'm trying to think of where I want to enter into that, that question. I think um, that is an area that the Rhode Island Coalition has invested a lot of resources and intentionality into is strategic communications and public awareness over the past few decades, because that is a, an element of changing attitudes, uh, educating the public, and creating that social norms change that we want to see. Um, and so that is a, an intentional part of our, our 10 men strategy, which is our men's engagement strategy. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more shortly, because that is a, a way to have an impact on the community level, um, not only raising awareness about the issue of domestic violence, but we know we're not going to end this violence through services and responding to it after has, it has occurred. We're not going to educate our way out of the problem. We, of course, need services. We need safety nets and supports for survivors. We need education and we need a community level change. And as Lucy said, changing the conditions in our communities that increase the risk for violence. And some of those include social norms, like you said, around folks still not thinking uh, domestic violence doesn't happen here or domestic violence isn't uh, my business, it's a, it's a private matter. And so a lot of the work that we have been doing around primary prevention, but also across our organization is elevating the issue as a community problem. It isn't a family matter. It isn't a private relationship issue. This is a community problem that doesn't just occur between two individuals. It is rooted in community factors, societal level factors. And I think that's why it, it takes so long and is such long haul work. You referenced, you know, uh, at least four decades, you know, the, the Rhode Island Coalition has existed for I think, 42 years at this point. And 
you know, across all of that time, these are deeply entrenched, entrenched issues that are rooted in, you know, systemic oppression, systemic racism, you know, really big, big problems. And so, of course, it will be long haul work. And we have to, I think, raise, raise consciousness and awareness that those are the root causes of violence. It isn't a problem that's inherent in individuals. Um, we have to work on the community and societal levels, but that's part of why it's so, uh, it is challenging and gradual, gradual work that is going to take time. I think at the big beginning of my interest in domestic violence, and we will use that term, even though there's multiple terms used, but I think most people recognize domestic violence. So we'll keep using that term. And one of the things that a lot of people don't recognize is what you're saying about it's a community problem. They see it only as a problem when something horrible occurs that impacts them, like our sports figure. Oh, oh no, I watched that guy on TV. Oh no, now it's drama. But when it happens to the person next door, it's kind of like just an annoyance or what's wrong with them. Do you, do you see what I'm trying to get at? How do we, how do you as a communicator and representing the Rhode Island Coalition, how do you address those issues? I, I know I walk in the grocery store and somebody will start talking about how, oh, their neighbor's just been with this guy, he's a bad guy and she's told him to leave. And he's just, she's just, the, the woman's just not leaving. And I, it's just so, it's so frustrating. My thing is I always come back with, well, Research shows it takes seven attempts to quit smoking. How many attempts do you think it takes to realize that your hopes, your dreams, the person you love is not going to be healthy for you? You know, so, but what do you do? How do you, how do you universalize this experience? I think those are some of the other norms that we have to change, you know, rampant, rampant victim blaming. And that's why we have to educate about, raise awareness about the problem you pointed to take seven, often uh, research shows it takes seven times, seven attempts before a survivor can successfully leave a relationship, but also shifting to the survivor knows their situation best and the survivor is the expert in their own lives and knows what they need to do to stay safe. They know they may not um, want to leave the relationship, they just want the violence to end and really empowering, believing in the empowerment of survivors and that on a community level, I think that's why one of our prevent primary prevention priorities is increasing community connectedness and increasing community uh, cohesion, social cohesion, so that neighbors are connected. They have authentic relationships. They're working on working on aspects of their community together that they want to improve, and that solutions for domestic violence are coming from the community, not top down from uh, folks who think they know best for communities. So I think that can often happen is folks outside the abusive relationship might think they know best for the survivor. And then that happens on a community level too with programming and other strategies. And so that's one thing that we try to work on is having our strategies be informed by the folks who are participating in them, having solutions be driven from the communities most impacted to try to shift those norms um, as well. Okay, thank you. Lucy, let's get back to you because you told us uh, a little bit about the coalition. You told us a little bit about yourself. And you talk to us about what it will take to prevent uh, domestic violence. But what, what do you see as, well, I guess, let me back up. What is the Delta project? What is the Delta focus? And how did you get involved with it? And I'm gonna ask Lucy this, Trista. Okay, and just so we're clear, um, 
even though I did start at the organization in that role, Krista is now um, co coordinating the Delta project. So um, she'll, she'll definitely have a lot to add. I can say that um, at that time, what we were really trying to foster um, because of those three areas that I mentioned, engaging men, engaging youth and building our capacity, that we were really trying to figure out how do we how do we engage men? How do we tackle that piece? How do we figure out how do we help men in the community um, know that they have a role to play? And we know that most men in, in the community are not violent, right? But they stay silent in the face of other men's violence. And that that silence allows domestic violence to thrive. Um, and so how do we change the norms so that all of us are owning this issue? That was a, a real priority for us. And that's why we decided to create 10 Men, which is one of our Delta uh, focus um, priority programs. And so I'll, I'll shift it over to Krista, maybe if she wants to add more detail. Okay, thank you, Krista. Sure. I would love to to dive in a little bit to 10 men if we feel feel ready to. Well, I'm still not clear. I mean, obviously sure. the Delta focus is a, an offshoot or a result of the CDC program. Could you just give me a couple sentences on how that ties together that then has led to your 10 men project? Absolutely. So our current uh, uh, grant program is called Delta Impact. So there, there have been several iterations of this Delta funding. And so that began in 2002 with, the, with our coalition being funded in 2003, contributing for, for state coalitions uh, and local uh, coordinated community response teams to contribute to an evidence base on a national level for what can these strategies look like to prevent domestic violence before it happens in the first place. So that this funding is really looking at how do we prevent first time victimization and first time perpetration. So not only prevent someone who's already been someone who's already experienced abuse from experiencing it again, but what can we put in place so that children born tomorrow never witness abuse, never experience it, never perpetrate it. And so that Lucy alluded to this being a, really a new wave in this movement and new resources in the early 2000s to really start moving in this way. And yes, of course, we, we need to continue to respond to this violence and put safety nets and supports in place for survivors. And we can't only continue responding to the violence after it has occurred. We have to start working on moving upstream. What are the factors and conditions we can change and address? What are the protective factors we can put into place too to create safe supportive communities so this violence doesn't happen in the first place. And I think that's what's really exciting is when I came into the work in 2013, we had been funded uh, for 10 years to do this work. And there was a lot of intentionality um, led by, by Lucy and the prevention team at the time to institutionalize these conversations and have this be, happen on an organizational level and a movement level in Rhode Island um, to shift that paradigm of, we can't only respond, we have to prevent. And that's what we mean by primary prevention. Okay, terrific. So now that brings us to your project. So give us a little background on uh, how did you think of it? Was it already in research stages and you guys developed it? Or how did you come across this as an idea to use as part of the Delta Pro uh, Prevention Project? Yeah, and so at that time, um, I'll start us off on that one. Um, so 10 Men was born basically because of what was happening on the national level. There were a lot of conversations happening across coalitions about how do we engage men in this work? Um, and so we, based on the needs that came out of our state planning, based on what was happening at the national level, we decided to 
to pilot it, to try it, to bring people together. So it wasn't a program that existed somewhere else. We were inspired. I will give credit to Delaware. Uh, they had um, at that time launched a program of their own engaging men and they didn't have any extra funding to do it. I think um, that inspired me to say, you know what, we, we, we can do this. We can start it and see what the appetite is in the community for continuing to engage men in as allies in this work in prevention. So we did, and we put a call out to male allies in our network, folks that we had worked with in the past, people on our boards, um, and we had about 22 men answer that call um, to just sit and have a conversation about about it with us to see like, is this possible? Can we do this in Rhode Island? And they said, yes, that we could. And so we decided to take the risk and put the program in action. My colleague at the time, Chris uh, Wilhite, helped me kind of put the program together. Um, and it has three tiers. So we, we work at the individual level for the men to uh, uh, participate in monthly sessions with us. Um, where they do a lot of learning and a lot of self-reflection on the ways that gender norms have influenced their own lives and maybe ways in which they have colluded with um, harmful uh, gender norms. And then it also has this community level aspect where there's a public awareness campaign that is attached to the program that we do it after the men have been engaged with us for over for a year. Um, and we do that every June as a way to invite more men to figure out what their role is in helping to prevent and promote healthy relationships in their community and in their spheres. Um, and then we also engage the third component, which is um, the men doing actions in their own um, circles where they have influence. So if they're a teacher, figuring out how can they bring this back to their students? If they're a coach, how can they bring this back to their players? If they're a priest, how do they bring this back to their congregation? And so really looking at where they fit in the community, where they sit, and then how can they bring this information back um, and influence their influence others? Lucy, you left off by explaining the three levels of involvement for your 10 men project. Let me be clear, you're not working with perpetrators here, you're working with community members, is that correct? Okay, great. And how do you, you said you picked people who were male allies in your network. Did you have resistance from, from I, I can picture a number of men going, nah, I'm not, no, uh -uh, no. And I guess what I'm getting at is you picked community leaders, it sounds like, to kind of be yes. delegates. How is that transitioning to regular community folks who are not leaders? You know, I, I have to preface that a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a politician and, and the politician listed all the endorsements from people. And usually if you are the police chief or whatever, they list that. But this person listed community leader after every individual name. And I went, really? I've, I've lived in this community a really long time. I don't think we have that many leaders. I, I don't. So, so how do you decide who's a leader? And and how does that translate into just the, 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 the rest of us? Yes, okay. Um, and so that's a great question. I, I think um, sometimes when people think of leaders, 
they think of like officials, right? People that either are appointed to the position or are leading an organization. Um, and we actually take a broader view because we really believe everyone, every individual is modeling other behavior as it's a leader to someone in their community. Um, so we're not looking for just people that have like formal authority in organizations. Doesn't mean we would exclude them, but that isn't the lens that we're using to uh, reach out uh, to men in our community. It's really looking at diverse sectors. So people in the faith community, who are the leaders there? Maybe it's, maybe it is, you know, um, the pastor, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's someone in the in the clergy, you know, that is that person. So who are the leaders, the natural, the person that um, runs choir, um, the folks that people turn to in, in the community. And so informal leaders as well as formal leaders. Um, so that I'll say first. And then when we did put the call out, um, we asked advocates in our network, like who are the men that you think that you work with that you think would be a good fit for what we're looking to do, right? Um, that would say yes to this and commit to this. And so traditionally we've always worked with men in like in law enforcement, in criminal justice, but we hadn't really put a call out to just men in the community like this before. And at first we, we started with the people that we know, right? So our people's husbands, people, people's coaches, their pastors, having them be the ones to participate. And then the men after the first year, those men then identified other men after their own experience, they say, oh, you know what? I, I'll we'll help you recruit for next year because it's a one-year commitment that we ask of the men. So that's how it started. And um, I feel like we've been very successful um, in every year being able to recruit 10 men that commit to the program. And the response from the community has been wonderful to be able to see like, hey, that's my accountant um, on that billboard. Um, it just brings a different feel to it than just um, you know formal authority, formal leaders. So yeah, Krista, I don't know if you wanna add anything. I, I think I've been thinking about uh, what you what you asked Heather about resistance, and I think believing domestic violence is wrong and wanting to play a role as as anyone, but but take you know a man in the community who who wants to get involved. I think what ten men takes it to to another level of that self reflection piece of really coming to the table and uh, unpacking maybe like Lucy said how uh, gender norms harmful gender norms have played out in your own life. You know how you might have participated in some of and some of that, um, and some of those problematic behaviors, and, and that takes a different commitment, and that takes a different interest level of, I really want to dive deep and be with this cohort of other men to do this work, not only out in the community, but also on, on myself and on my own relationships, and take that lens and bring it to my own life, and so there, I think there is also, when, it, when we think about leadership, there's a readiness piece. The model of 10 men is, we're coming to the table because we see that this uh, problem exists, we see gender-based oppression exists, and we want to be mobilized as allies and be better equipped to address this in the community. And so they are then positioned to impact the folks in their lives and spheres who may not be at that level, who may not align with gender equity principles or may not have the same values. And so that is also, I think, a piece of that leadership um, role where they're saying, I'm going to go out, I'm at this level of readiness and you know, understanding, they build on that over their cohort experience. And then they are the folks who can go out and mobilize others and take that message uh, to a broader community. So let's get into the nitty gritty. 
what do you do during these sessions? You have individual level sessions every month. What, what are some of the topics you've covered? You've talked that you said gender norms and how that contributes to the problem, et cetera. It, it, I hope, is this guilt-based? <laughs> I, I get really tired of programs that are supposed to uh, enlighten us, but basically make us just feel really guilty <laughs> because that, you know, it's kind of like touching a, war, a hot burner on the stove. You know, if you make me feel uncomfortable, I don't want to do it again, you know? <laughs> um, so I don't think it's guilt-based. Uh, we're not trying to shame men into um, action in, in their communities. Um, some of the topics that we cover are around like understanding the dynamics of abuse, right? So we want to equip these men with understanding uh, an uh, active bystander so that if they do come in contact with folks in their own families or in their community, that they know where the resources are and how to identify the abuse and then how to intervene safely. Um, so th that's part of the, the, the information that they learn over the course of the year. Um, but then we also focus a lot um, around self-refraction, around like understanding um, that, yeah, sexism exists and that because we live in a sexist world, um, there, there is male privilege, right? And acknowledging that and then figuring out how do they utilize that to help create the world that we want, right? How do they use, how do they um, uh, use their influence, their power, their status in the community to advocate for more equitable uh, policies in the workplace, policies at the state level, um, you know, to figure out ways in which they can promote equality. So, so that's, that's kind of the work of it. Um, okay, but is promoting equality enough? I mean, it seems to me that when we're talking domestic violence, there's more at play than just, I, I mean, I've talked with abusers who absolutely, at least on the surface, respect their, their wives or their partners. Um, they somehow or other, there's something more complex that intercedes during an actual domestic violence situation. And I don't know what it is. I'm not smart enough to know that, but it seems to me that just acknowledging it, we, I have had male friends who, yes, they get it. As a matter of fact, they've been abused. They certainly understand it. And yet they don't, they really don't. So how do you deal with that? Or am I just an oddball that has strange male friends? <laughs> I think it's one of these things um, where um, if we think about, and I'll just move to like moving from sexism to racism, right? So when we're doing anti-racism work, we're really trying to build allies with an acknowledgement that racism is so pervasive and that we all have, um, you know, adopted um, in a way subconsciously uh, racist gender uh, racist stereotypes and information, right? And so it's the same thing with what the work that we're trying to do here with ten men is that we acknowledge that oppression exists, sexism exists, um, and that those are root causes of why violence occurs in our communities, domestic violence. Um, and so there is an acknowledgement there as well that. Um, one person alone isn't going to end this issue, but that if we're all working towards creating a world in which there isn't this power imbalance, where a sexism doesn't exist in institutions, in pay, you know, in our lives, that that would then translate to also into our relationships. So yes, I, I hear your, what you're saying, that is it good enough? 
it's not, but what Krista was talking about, um, you know, the readiness, readiness factor, right? Where like they, they have to already come in with a belief that oppression exists in the world and that there's something that they can do in their own, in their own circle um, to be able to um, put a dot on saying, hey, I'm doing something positive in my community to help move us one step closer to a more equitable society. And, and un fundamentally, we believe that, it, that when we dismantle these types of oppressions, we will actually end violence against women. That's, that's at the core of that. Okay. Krista, let me go to you because it sounds from what we've been saying that you know, you've actually made it kind of cool to be a man who is involved in eliminating gendered violence. How did you make it cool? Well, thank you. I'm glad it sounds that way. I think part of it is the people involved in this work, the 10 men members, the staff, advocates, people in this in this field in these movements are already cool and they're and this is a space that's bringing them together and convening them and and create and holding space for them. And uh, we do, as facilitators of the space, bring our expertise and information and discussion prompts, and we, we do a lot of intentional planning around the monthly meetings and the learning components, and it's a co-created space where we don't say, okay, we're the experts, we have the information, we have it all figured out, we're going to train you up, and you're going to have the answers when you leave this space. It's really we're learning alongside each other, we're all being changed, um, and I, I think primary prevention work is just really cool because it's about transforming our communities to build a world that we know is possible. Uh, as Lucy said earlier, where we all can thrive, uh, you know, safe, vibrant uh, communities. And we know that that exists. We know that people are already doing that work. Um, and there's so many efforts and movements in our communities that that are those, those vibrant, um, you know, solutions to these uh, you know, deep and vast and vast problems. So I think we're providing a container and a space to bring that to the forefront and to bring people together who may uh, have not ever come come together before, who may never have crossed paths. Uh, when we think of ten men, you know, members who are coming from different different sectors. Yes, they they are from Rhode Island, um, which we are a small state, so we often know each other. But uh, they may never have uh, had a chance to get to know each other or collaborate on something together. Um, so I think that that is a piece of it. Do uh, many of these men have, uh, do they have knowledge about domestic violence? Uh, I know a lot of times when I'm dealing with uh, men who seem, who seem to be very involved and interested in eliminating domestic violence, it's because they grew up with it or they have direct experience with it. Is that what you're finding? We have had folks uh, come to the program because they were a child who witnessed abuse. Um, We've had folks who have come uh, to the program because they are a counselor who works with uh, young children and young boys um, who are either witnessing domestic violence at home or have experienced abuse themselves. Um, we also, I think over time have learned who again has is at that, that place where they're ready to engage and ready to be a leader uh, in by, you know, bystander action and, and social change in their communities. And that has included men who are doing work not necessarily specific to domestic violence, but related to who are already invested and have demonstrated a commitment to anti-racism work, anti-oppression efforts, who are community activists uh, who might be leading uh, community groups in their in their town or active on, you know, on city council. So it's not always specific to domestic violence, but we've learned sort of who 
is a is a good fit for the program over time and they come from all different sectors but have demonstrated a commitment to those values and have already started taking action in their communities okay but you did something else i mean i picked up on uh <laughs> on what was being said about the billboards um what you know it's not that you're not you're not just keeping these 10 guys locked up in your office you you're doing stuff so tell me about that what is that how are you communicating all of this to the public Yes, yeah, so we uh, decided very early on from the beginning that we needed to make it visible, um, right? So that if we wanted to counter these uh, unhealthy masculinity norms, or you know, men have to be in charge and men are not nurturing and they just have to be strong, uh, then we needed to make sure that folks were seeing a different example in their community. And so for that reason, we decided it was really important um, as we worked with the men um, to create campaigns and not just once, but every year and throughout the year on our social media, share messages about um, the work that 10 Men is doing um, and the ways in which men uh, can play a role in ending domestic violence throughout the year, because that just felt like if we didn't do that, then we were only investing in these 10 men and, and we were never gonna get to that level of being able to influence the community and change norms in Inward Island. And so that making them visible, making the work that they're doing um, and the messages promoting uh, healthy masculinity norms, it, it just, it was, it was something that we knew we had to do right from the beginning. Okay. And how did you get this expertise? Did the National Coalition, uh, are they helping at all? Or are you kind of a pilot project for them? Or what, how does that work? It's a little bit of both. I, we learn a lot from being part of this national cohort through the Delta grant program from CDC. Uh, we have a lot of communities of practice and, and calls where we provide uh, sort of peer technical assistance to one another. We're sharing examples of our work. We're learning uh, through what one another are doing. Um, and as I mentioned before, our coalition in Rhode Island has been at the forefront of investing in strategic communications, conducting statewide public awareness campaigns. We've been uh, a leader in media advocacy, working with journalists to frame domestic violence in news media. Um, so we've really been, thanks to the work of, of folks, you know, who uh, over decades have uh, led, led that work um, at our coalition, have had a strong foundation in understanding how important strategic communications um, and public awareness is to this work um, and is to social change. So it, it's definitely, we, we had a strong foundation to build on. Um, and then we have uh, national technical assistance providers and our peer uh, grant recipients through the Delta cohort um, that I think have also certainly shaped and informed how we do this work. Okay. For sure. And I will, I will say um, too that it's because we have that experience of working with the directly um, in the monthly sessions and hearing them reflect and the stories that they share then that um, in those spaces that being able to tell those stories it just it moved us so much in in our own spaces that being able to share that and and create whether it's a video um, or um, a PSA that kind of tried to capture the same magic that we were seeing happen in the room just became something that we were like, oh, this is not, this is like, we are onto something here, sharing this. So like, as Chris has said, we already had that experience, but then when we are getting calls from other states to that, hey, we watched your video, can we use this in a training? Can we share this in our classroom? To hear that from other folks lets us know that this is not only something that's important to the people in our state, but it's something that's needed at the national level, like 
folks are eager for this information, for these tools, for these resources that we've been developing. And so keeping those communications materials going every year is really important. I have two questions. One is, and again, forgive me, but I'm playing devil's advocate here. Could we say, well, let me rephrase it. It has happened in the past more than once that when men become involved, they co-opt the whole movement. <laughs> You're talking to an old hippie here. <laughs> so um, have you seen that happening at all? Or uh, how have you prevented it from happening? And you're both chuckling. So I'm thinking maybe my concept or my question isn't so off the wall as I would have thought. So who wants to tackle this? Uh, I'll jump in first. I'll see if Lucy wants to add anything. Um, I think it's something that we're we're aware of the potential and we're aware of or, or the potential for art in our 10 men space to be centering men because we're bringing men together to there. This is not a space that men often have in their lives to come together with other men, talk about domestic violence, talk about how man, you know, how, how manhood has been shaped in their lives through the, through these norms. And so I think what we've realized over time is that a lot can happen and be, start being unpacked in that space. And we have to always remember to bring it back to, of course, healthy masculinity is important. Being a whole person is important. And in this space, in our uh, program, in our strategy, our, ultimately it is to what end? It is to prevent men's violence against women and girls. It's to prevent intimate partner violence. And so always making sure we're connecting those dots. And so that Yes, there's going to be a lot of personal things, personal reflections um, that are happening, and those are important and honoring those. And who are we centering? Who are we accountable to? And those are questions that we don't just answer and then we're done. We have to, not only through the cohort year, but as we plan, um, as the program evolves, we're constantly asking those questions and making sure, okay, if we're accountable to survivors, to women, to non-binary folks in the community, to people most impacted by this issue, how is that playing out in the strategy and how are we ensuring that we're holding those, those folks at the center, even though this is deeply personal work and the men, as anyone coming to the table for something they're passionate about, have a lot of ideas, have a lot of perspectives and we wanna hold those and still stay true you know, to the aim of the program. Lucy, do you have anything to add? Yeah, and I think just in small ways, you know, just like, for example, the men meet, um, but there's, usually at least three women present in the room, right? To make sure that, to, to, to not to just to make sure, but honestly, to be part of the conversation, to model like co-facilitation that, that you do have a, to, to learn from women, right? Um, that there is a lot that we bring to the conversation as well. And so we try to, it, that's just a small way of which where we try to keep accountability to women, to the people the most impacted by domestic violence. I just wanted to add that little piece because I think that's important. Um, and I get it. I, I think it, it is, it's a both and it's, it's, we have to be intentional as Krista was saying in order to make sure that that doesn't happen. And I think our coalition as a whole, you know, we have SOAR, which is a survivor's task force and they are very visible in all of our, in our legislative agenda, our communications. Um, they inform all of our work prevention as well. Um, and so that's another way in which we try to make sure that we are centering the people that are most affected by the issue is we even have SOAR members come and teach the 10 men um, some, some of the sessions, some of the curriculum. So that's all I'll add. Okay. What about alumni? We've been doing this for several years now. 
So we've been talking a lot about men and men's involvement in education and remodeling, if you would, about the relationships between men and women, especially where violence is, uh, is, is occurring. And one of the questions that I asked you to talk about was the alumni. You've been doing it for a number of years and, you know, you must have a whole cadre of men who've been trained and made aware and uh, expressed enthusiasm about doing something about domestic violence. What are the alumni doing? Do you have an alumni group? Yes, we do. Um, and now we have a full-time um, position. So in this past year, we were able to hire actually a full-time coordinator for the position to be able do more work with the alumni. So because it was limited capacity, we only had a part-time person and Krista and myself, uh, Cynthia, our evaluator. So it just what became too much. Um, so thankfully, we, had, we were able to get the resources to bring someone on to engage our alumni. Um, and we have seen them um, take on different roles in the community. So we have we actually had alumni on our board, start serving on our board. We have two right now on the coalition's board. We have seen the alumni go and testify in support of bills um, that we are uh, trying to champion and get passed in our state. So we call on them to meet with the new men every year. So they, they, we do a networking event um, to welcome the new cohort of 10 men. And we ask the alumni to come back to talk to them about their experience um, and then to be available to them throughout the year should they need support in a speaking engagement or um, an event that they're trying to plan in their own community. Um, it's so yeah, we, we try to engage um, the alumni as much as we can um, and to see that work in action, again, is one of those things that really gives hope as someone who does domestic violence work day to day that like another world is possible and we're actually helping to create it and it's happening right now in our in in, in our presence. Krista I go back to the fact that it's, you're making this cool you're making it cool did you have a model for doing that Krista or how did you did, did you just assume and and uh, know instinctively that in order to be a successful program that really had long-lasting effect you had to do that PR campaign, if you will, along with it, or did this just happen organically? How did, how did it happen that you made it cool? Oh, that's the best thing I can say. <laughs> I think having uh, Lucy and as you mentioned, Chris, who helped develop the program, folks who are really passionate and understand the issue and understand primary prevention, you know, starting the program, I will lift up um, our part-time coordinator, Lee, who coordinated the work for five, uh, a little over five years. Um, having that, it's such relational work. And so I do think having authentic relationships with men, with these men um, who are participating and knowing what they, what is, you know, special about them, what they're interested in, what they can bring to the table, what they can tap into. A lot of our work, it, it is a developmental approach. So we, we, practice, we take action, we reflect, and then we incorporate what we're learning back into the program. And a big piece of that has been asking the 10 men themselves, what's working, what could be improved, what is it that, that we're doing, what is the, uh, you know, of all the things that we could be focusing on, what should we, you know, hone in on more. So I do think that has helped too, is it's informed, as Lucy said, our messaging, our communications campaigns have been informed by the men, the program itself has been informed by the 10 men. So I think we're, not just doing this work in isolation, we're doing it in partnership uh, with the people that are have participated and that helps us bring in the next wave, uh, you know, the next group um, that will carry it forward. 
Rhode Island is small. I mean, it's still a state, so it's not like you know everybody, but it is smaller than, say, California or, you know, uh, some of the other places. Do you think the same model would be, could it be affected the same way in a larger state? Or would there have to be changes, do you think? I think we are fortunate in when we think about our media buying and our public awareness campaigns, we are fortunate to have a small state because we are able to saturate uh, the state with with the messaging. Um, and to scale that up, we would need more, a state would need more resources, but it would be possible. Um, I think this cohort model and going out into one's community, that could maybe happen on a county level or on a city level. But I do think we've, we've had many states reach out to us to ask more about the models. So that's been another exciting piece of the work because we get to share about um, what we've learned, what our work looks like, and they have adapted the work and, and adopted similar models in, in their uh, local context. So it might not look exactly like 10 men, but it's informed by um, our successes and, and lessons learned. So we've seen that it can be replicated in, in a way or adapted um, in other settings in other states. Okay. Lucy, do you target who your 10 men are going to be? We do look for diversity in terms of the members um, each year, diversity of sector, of age, of profession, uh, where they are in the state. But again, the names that get come to us initially come from our partners, come from 10 men alumni, from advocates in the field, um, from folks uh, that uh, feel like they've met someone that fits uh, the and is ready to be able to be an active person working on gender equity at, at, you know, at the statewide level. And so I would say less that I pick them, but that we encourage our members to and our support is to send us names. And then the process now, we've been, we even changed it a little where the men fill out a form online first if they're interested. So we put the call out, the men fill out um, the form online, and then Krista and um, Devin, our new uh, staff member, um, our new men, full-time men's engagement coordinator, then meet with them and have a conversation about the expectations, what the program is, to see if, if it's a good match before they're invited to be part of the cohort. Because I would think that you would want not only personal diversity, but also diversity of skills and kind of target audiences. And I would think that that would be a lot of front end thinking about who's going to be your 10 men each year. So, <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of outreach and a lot of planning to get 10 men. So even though we have the networks there um, and we have a good process in place, it does take a few months to get the cohort of 10 men for all of those reasons, right? Who we want to make sure Again, the diversity of the men and making sure that we have people that can speak to different audiences, different spheres of influence. Um, so it does take some time, uh, several months prior to being able to bring a new cohort together. But so far, so good. <laughs> do you ever have an oopsie? I mean, do you ever have uh, uh, one of the 10 men that is actually an abuser or gets, um, you know, does something that does not reflect well? And, and if so, how have you handled that? That's okay, a, you're both silent. You're both silent. <laughs> yeah, that's a question that we also ask, ask ourselves in, in an ongoing way because part of 10 Men, as Lucy said, is the members do that self-reflection and they unpack how they may have participated in, in unhealthy dynamics or colluded with, with you know, sexism and, and other 
problematic behaviors. And so uh, that's something that is an active part of the program and unlearning that behavior is something that is going to happen in the space and is I think an important an important part of the work. So you've never had an outright oopsie though. We've had men that have self-selected out. So it's not all roses, right? So we have men that come in and then maybe because of their own cultural um, beliefs um, or just maybe we thought we had screened for readiness, um, but they weren't actually ready to receive the message. So we've had years where even though we've started off with 10 men, we might have ended the year with eight. That has happened where we've had members not complete the program. And I will say that um, it, it hasn't happened uh, uh, in terms of um, someone um, as Krista was saying, like because there's self-reflection that there might be times where people might identify um, that they have, I don't know, wish they had intervened in a different way or wish they had um, not participated in an event or uh, an, act, an action or an act that um, now they see as uh, not appropriate, right? But I think that's different than our intention. Our intention is always to, I, to bring in those men that don't use violence and figure out again, what the role is that men that don't use violence care about the issue and we haven't figured out a role for them um, yet. And so how do we bring those men? Like that's the screening process, the way that we would normally have done it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the, your selection process, that must be the toughest part. You know, that's, you know, you're nodding yes. So I'm assuming that I'm not way off there. You know, one of the things that is impressing me about your program, I must uh, add a little information here in that, uh, you know, I'm in University of Washington territory. And of course, University of Washington has done a lot of research on domestic violence. And uh, a few years ago, they did a, a program that was well written up and, and drew great uh, responses. And I happen to know the lead researcher on that. And basically what they did is they had men self-select for therapy for and, and education. And they had a, a lot of uh, great results in uh, you know um, changing men's behavior. And I always took it with a grain of salt and I told the lead researcher, you're, you're, you're selecting men that already know that there's a problem by letting them self-select. You're not getting those hardcore people that don't think this is a problem. And so, I mean, it's great that you're intervening with those particular men, but don't, I, I'm concerned that, you know, people who read the results of your research will think that this is reflective of all kinds of abusers. And so I highly objected to that. And that's kind of been in the back of my mind whenever we talk about men in the movement. But I have to say, hearing about your 10 men program, I'm yeah, you are self-selecting. Yeah, you are getting people who want to do something and maybe even change their own behaviors, but that's an appropriate place for it. So I, I can't criticize you for that. And I'd love to criticize, so. <laughs> I'm highly dissatisfied now. Um, <laughs> we only have a couple of minutes left, but whenever I do interviews, I always ask, is there a question that you wished I had asked that I didn't? Krista? Hmm. Well, I, I like, I loved the questions that you asked. It was really, they were really fun to answer. I love how you're uh, characterizing this work as cool because 
Lucy and I and, and Cynthia, our evaluator, we think primary prevention is very cool, but uh, it's not always characterized as such. So that's making me happy. Well, let um, me just say, we know, we know that it's cool, <laughs> but not until everybody else knows that it's that's cool. True. And that's what you seem to be doing a good job on is, is letting everybody else know how cool it is. So <laughs> I don't know, nothing comes to mind. What do you think, Lucy? Any question you want to answer that we haven't had a chance? Um, no, I think all of your questions allowed us to really kind of um, hone in on the, the main things that we want people that are listening to know, which is prevention is possible. There's a role for men to play in, in helping us end this and that it, it, unless we come together as a full community and really own this issue as a community, we're, we're not going to end domestic violence, right? Um, we can have all the services in the world. But if we don't change the norms and the conditions in our community, then domestic violence is always going to be with us. And I really do believe and have hope that, you know, seven generations from now, if we can really continue to uh, identify ways um, to change and make things more equitable in our communities and across the country, that we will end domestic violence. So thank you for all your questions. I feel like they really helped us get those, those messages out there. Thank you. And, and you just gave me pause there. You said seven generations. Really, we have to wait seven generations. <laughs> Can't we do it in a couple? <laughs> God knows we're trying, right? Definitely. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I'm very impressed. Uh, I would like you to come back at some point. Let us know what's happening in the future with 10 Men, 10 Ways. We know everything is dependent on the budget. And so hopefully, uh, you know, that will not be an issue, but knowing our attention span as a culture and <laughs> it all, you know, I, I'm, I'm often impressed that, you know, five years ago, everything was domestic violence, but then that ran its course and then everything was human trafficking and then that ran its course. And now, you know, I mean, it's like, these things don't go away because we stop reporting them or covering them. They're there and they will be there unless we actually do something about it. So that, that's my thing. So, okay, well, real quick question, Lucy, what are you doing in the next five years? Well, hopefully I'm going to still be at the coalition. I, you know, I, I feel like I'm, my work is not done. I feel like I'm still challenged every day um, at the coalition. I, I feel like I'm doing the work that I was called to, called to do. Um, and so I hope that I'm still working at the coalitions, but that we've made even bigger cracks in some of the small shifts that we're starting to see right now. So, you know, we're starting to see shifts even in commercials, you know, um, um, in media, right? We're seeing less sexist ads. Uh, uh, we're seeing ads that are from showing more diversity of masculinities, right? Men being the characters. I don't know though, I have to I have to be devil's advocate here. It seems to me the <laughs> things that I've seen, everybody, uh, and, and whenever there's a relationship, the guy is the doofus and she's the smart, you know, and it's like, no, come on, they're not all doofuses. Like, <laughs> let's go back you know there's certainly there are a few doofus women and there are a few non-doofus men you know but uh that's just my little take on it probably because i'm older than dirt okay <laughs> <laughs> but there are some that are showing some some healthy masculinities in my opinion i like i know i don't know if you've seen the gillette commercial but that's one where they're like trying to show um that there's there can be a different way and that that it's harming not only women on these traditional gender norms, but it harms young boys um, oh, yeah. when they 
can't fully express themselves, right? And they grow up to be men. Um, and so if we really want to interrupt this, how do we, you know, how do we change, how do we change those norms and those, those stereotypes? And I feel like, you know, you asked me, what will I be doing in five years? I hope that that crack is wider, right? I hope that the work I'm doing today is going to be a wider crack in five years and that I'm, I'm seeing even more programs um, like 10 Men that are really working to um, prevent domestic violence from happening in our communities. Okay, thank you so much. And I'm looking at the clock. We're pretty much out of time. So Krista, I'm just going to assume that you're kind of a ditto on that. <laughs> and we'll just write down that Lucy and Krista both hope in five years to have a wider, no, um, <laughs> I won't go there. <laughs> Ladies, you've been a delight to interview. Please keep me informed of what's happening and keep doing the cool work. And thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. What do men have to do with domestic violence? Well, a lot, but what do they have to do with it if they're not a perpetrator? Rhode Island Coalition Against Domestic Violence has come up with a program called 10 Men. They target 10 men each year. There's training, there's publicity, there's uh, outreach, and they're doing a great job. And they got a grant to do it from the uh, Center for Disease Control. Learn more about the 10 Men program from the Rhode Island Coalition Against Domestic Violence right here on Three Women, Three Ways, Sundays on Valley 104.9 FM.